There are a million ways to make money in the food service industry. You just have to find one. On the Titans of Food Service podcast, I interview real life movers and shakers in the food game who cut through all the noise to get to the top. My name is Nick Portillo and welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Let's jump right into it. Welcome back to another episode of Titans of Food Service. I'm your host, Nick Portillo. And on this episode, I welcome a distinguished figure in the food industry, Mr. Ed Zimmerman, the president of The Food Connector. With an illustrious career spanning over four decades in food service, Ed brings a wealth of expertise encompassing food manufacturing, distribution, marketing, and comprehensive operations management for both restaurants and grocery businesses. Ed's knowledge extends also to the realm of pizza, where his experience includes sales, marketing, and perhaps the most extensive pizza repertoire in the U.S. And we'll get into that. Prior to assuming his current role, Ed held key positions such as the vice president of marketing for Bellissimo Foods, as well as serving as the president of Pizza.com and Success Foods Marketing. At the core of Ed's professional ethos is a genuine passion for supporting food companies through innovative strategies. His insights into the nuanced landscapes of costs, issues, and challenges facing the industry today are invaluable. I think you're going to find that in this here in this episode. Ed's commitment to confidentiality, transparent communication, and unwavering integrity distinguishes him as a true advocate for the food service sector. His areas of expertise encompass strategic planning, food industry marketing services, content writing, and a deep understanding of web 2.0 technologies. Prepare for an engaging conversation as we delve into the mind of Ed Zimmerman, undeniably a titan in the world of food service. Let's go ahead and welcome Ed. All right, we are live. Ed, welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. I appreciate you taking time out of your evening here to come on and meet with me. Yeah, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm excited to participate. Well, I'd like to, as we talked a little bit off camera, I'd like to start with what I call the fiery five food service questions. These are five easy icebreaker questions. Are you ready? Yes, I am. So the first question is, if you could have dinner with one person, historical or alive, who would it be and why? Wow. Okay. Now there's a question. Bruce Springsteen. And there's no, I don't, I don't have to explain why. Uh, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> I love it. I was reading on your bio that you've had an incredible amount of pizza. Would you say over under 10,000 slices of pizza you've eaten in your lifetime? Definitely over. Wow. How many do you think you'd be? I, I, I couldn't tell you, but I know that I know that uh, I, I think it says on my LinkedIn profile, I perhaps have eaten more pizza than anybody in the United States of America. And I'll focus on the perhaps part. Wow. All right. Next one is what is one ingredient that you feel should never be on a pizza? Cauliflower. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior or habit has most improved your life? I think getting up early and planning. I hit the ground running. Uh, you know, I, I was in the bakery business for a lot of years, and mm -hmm. um, I get up at five, which is which is much later than I used to. But I'm in my office by usually you know six forty five, and it just gives me that first hour to just plan my day, think about you know what are the priorities, what's urgent, what's important before the phone starts ringing and email and Zoom meetings and all that. So yeah, early bird gets the worm. And what time do you usually stay in the office till? 
five. Okay. That's a reasonable amount of time. And then here's the fifth question. It's the hardest one of all of them. Who has the best pizza you've ever had? You know, it's funny. I, I get asked this question frequently. And um, it was a, it was a little pizza shop in like Centralia, Illinois. I mean, literally in the middle of nowhere. Um, <laughs> I've never even heard of that place. And, uh, yeah. And I mean, it was like, it was, it was absolutely remarkable. The guy was, was, was from Brooklyn and uh, what he was doing in the middle of nowhere, I couldn't tell you, but I, I don't remember the name of the shop, but, but what I'd like to do is really do a shout out to my friend, um, Tony Gimignani here in yeah. uh, North beach in San Francisco. So if I had to pick one, it's Tony. Yeah, he does a fantastic job, and he's really built a, a solid business. Yeah, and he's a solid guy. I mean, just, you know, I mean, always always seems to have time for people. You know, he's always looking out for, for his employees and, and the community. He's a great guy. Amazing. Well, Ed, maybe a little background on yourself. Who are you, and what is your business? Sure. So my company's called The Food Connector. Um, not a name by accident. I'm a, I'm a networker. I've built my business, um, really just being naturally curious about people. You know, I'd meet people at a, at a food show and say, what do you do? And how did you do it? And, and I have kind of a photographic memory and, and, you know, five years later, people would say, do you know anybody who it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang on. I'd grab my phone. It's like, here's who you have to call. And, you know, I just connected people. And I, you know, I, I, you know, it's like, I always say, it's like, you know, what, what's my, what's my job? I, I come to work, I connect my friends and I get into do business with each other. You know, uh, what, a, what, a, what a wonderful thing. But I, I've had the really great fortune in my career of really doing it all. I mean, so many people that I've met in our business, it's very siloed. You come up on the operator side or the distribution side. And um, I've, I've worked in and managed restaurants, um, worked in and managed grocery stores. I've done food manufacturing, food distribution. I helped start a buying group. Of, um, of pizza and Italian food distributors. Um, I've done marketing. I've done brokerage. I've done consulting. I like to say I've sat on every seat on the Ferris wheel. And um, what I think it's done is given me perspective. You know, our business is, is really, you know, it, it, it all comes down to the last one or two or three percentage points. And it, when you feel the other guy's pain, when you know how they make their money and you know what their obstacles are and what they have to overcome, it's just so much easier to be able to see through the forest and, and you know, and make things happen. And so yeah, I just, I see myself as a bridge builder, again, a connector. Who do you find yourself connecting mostly? A lot of our work is, so we're all B2B marketing. So, it, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of operators to distributors, a lot of distributors to manufacturers, a lot of ingredient companies to manufacturers. So it's, it's really B2B. It's a, it's a sophisticated sale. It, you know, it's, it's, it's one, you know, the, the, the problem to me with, with B2C marketing is, you know, the consumer is very fickle. You know, they're, 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 this is, this is what I buy. This is the brand that I buy, but they walk into the store, they see buy one, get one. It's like, you know what? Good enough. And, you know, and, and, and you constantly have to give them a tweet, a TikTok, a video, a <laughs> promo code. Um, the kind of work that I like to do is much more strategic where, you know, a, a company that says we need 9.7 million pounds of mozzarella cheese over the next 18 months, we're looking for this spec, this pack size. And, and so as they're scouring the universe and looking on Google and the other search engines to find somebody who can satisfy them, my job is to put my client in that firing range. So they go, oh, we have to talk to these guys. 
And then, you know, and it's a, it's a long, arduous process to get ingredients spec'd, tested, you know, all of the, all of the documentation around it, all of the, you know, inspections and all of that. So it's, it's hard to get, to get a new piece of business, but by the same token, it's hard to lose it. So, you know, because, you know, for your competitor, they've got to go through all of those steps. It's not as easy as walking in the door and saying, I can get to the same thing, three cents less. And you right. know, so I like to work on that strategy side, you know, where how are we going to position the company? How are we going to make sure that you're in the RFP or that you're in consideration? It, it's just a much more exciting and interesting place to be. Sure. Do your engagements, do you typically have a contract, let's say with a manufacturer and then you go out on their behalf or you come to them with the need from an operator or distributor partner? Yeah, it, it happens both ways. I mean, most okay. of our work is, I mean, we're really, our model is really like a, a fractional chief marketing officer. You know, I don't look at us as an agency much as like we're adjunct staff. You know, most food companies, you know, they're spending not a lot of money on marketing. So if they're a you know, $50 million food company and they're spending $40,000 on marketing, they don't have a full-time vice president of marketing who went to Stanford and has an MBA. You know, it's usually really somebody whose title is vice president of sales and marketing, but their job's really sales. And, mm-hmm. and so all the years that I did consulting, you know, we would do market research or, um, you know, strategic planning sessions. And inevitably at the end of the conversation, somebody would say, well, this is great, but who's going to do this? And the need that I saw was that what food companies needed, small, mid-sized companies, was somebody to come in, help them co-create a plan, and then execute it. And wow. and so so it's more like that. That's most of our businesses. We're working, we've worked with a company, we've said, here's the five things you have to do, or six or nine or two, and then we give them a price to execute that. So it's we're like we're like a part-time staff marketing person on a salary. And that, that, that tends to be how we work with, you know, with, with most of our clients. But as you said, there's sometimes where, because we're the connectors, you know, we'll know somebody, somebody will say, Hey, I really, you know, you know, need this, or do you know anybody over at, you know, and, and that type of thing. And then we'll just pick up the phone or send an email and make direct connections. And I mean, um, we're not a broker. We're not, we're not somebody who gets paid a commission for a sale, but in the same way that you would help your, you know, your, your customer in any, in any fashion, you know, those are just the things that we do to help them grow. What about during COVID? If I can look back to my experience during COVID in 2020, there was a lot of people looking for a lot of different things, a lot of shortages. Um, it was items that weren't always popular. Uh, but now because of just the dynamics had changed of, of curbside pickup and our restaurants having to be closed, how was that time period for you? Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. So I, I, I sort of think is March 15th is like the day the world shut down. Yeah. March 16th, I, I came into my office. I pulled out my spreadsheet and I said, OK, file, save as disaster plan. So here's all the business we're going to lose. What are the costs I'm going to have to cut to survive this? Because everybody's going to get rid of marketing because I've seen this before. You know, in recessions right. where people say, well, I know marketing is the most important thing that I do from a strategic point of view, but but I got to I, I got to keep payroll. I got to keep the lights on. And so mm-hmm. we're just going to pause this. And that's what I expected to happen. And exactly the opposite happened. It was really interesting for us 
that, you know, what we saw was that um, we, we coined a phrase in those days. I mean, the way so much of our business has been done, distribution to operator is, uh, you know, DSR walks in the back door and says, hey, I'm with local distributor. Where's the chef over there? Hey, chef, I know you buy from Cisco or U.S. Foods or PFG, but there's got to be two or three items that they disappoint you on. Why don't you tell me what they are? I'll come back next week and I'll, and I'll show you a sample and I'll give you a quote. That's kind of how the business has gone. So what we said in those days was, well, with COVID, the back doors closed. In, fr- mm-hmm. in fact, for a lot of restaurants, the front door was closed. They were handing bags <laughs> out. You know, like, you know. So we said the only door that's open is the digital door. The only way to get into a restaurant was through social media or an email or that type of thing. And it was shocking how many companies that we had been talking to for years said, oh, my goodness, my sales staff can't do anything. Can you help me? Uh, Our business has literally quadrupled since COVID. That's that's amazing. I mean, part of it, part of it was right place at the right time. But part of it was I made a choice. I got aggressive and we went after people and said, look, what you're doing is not working. You don't have any kind of digital presence. You've got a mm-hmm. website that you haven't updated since 1997. This isn't going to work. <laughs> we developed for distributors this request a quote catalog that you know operators could come on at 10 o'clock at night and find items and say, can you get me a quote on these you know, four items and that type of thing. So we, we thought about, you know, how are we going to help people? How are we going to help our clients in this, in this brand new world? And, um, and it worked, you know, on the ingredient side, you know, the, the, the thing that happened was, was that companies that said, you know, well, we'd never accept a substitute <laughs> said, we'll take anything you got. <laughs> and, yeah. and so, so it was, it was a lot of pivoting quickly to help people in getting documentation, you know, and, and all of those things, you know, so that we could just quicken the supply chain. So, but, uh, but we did a lot of things and it worked for us. In my experience, a lot of the companies that made it through did exactly what you're doing. They started solving more problems for the customers that they already had or maybe even new customers and solving problems that they didn't realize maybe that they could solve uh, or weren't solving prior. So kudos to you. How do you think your business has transformed since then, since that time? I think that we we started looking at, at ourselves in a more sophisticated way. I think that we, we started looking at ourselves as, as that we had to, we had to bring the innovation that, you know, all of a sudden our customers were hungry for new things, you know, rather than us having to say, look, you have to do the, you're not doing these things now. You have to as well, you know, grandpa never did this, you know, grandpa never spent a dime on marketing and look how well we're doing. But I, I pushed myself and I pushed my team to think about what new services, you know, do we have to offer? What new ways, what, what innovative things can we do? And I think that it put us on a path of innovation that frankly, we hadn't been on before. I think that, you know, we, because so many food companies didn't want to do digital before, you know, we tried to keep it like, how do we do digital light? You know, how do we mm-hmm. sort of get them in, you know, and over time get them to see that this sort of thing works? And I think we just changed our, our approach to innovation um, from a survival you know, point of view for, for us and for them. Yeah. When it comes to networking, because I know you're pretty well connected within the industry, maybe some tips and tricks to people listening on how you build trust and relationships with people and maybe where you find them as well. It, it's, it's funny. I talked to a friend of mine yesterday who just retired 
And um, he gave me such a high compliment. He said, Ed, I know a lot of people that have the skills that you have. He said, you're the best networker I ever met. <laughs> and I'll go back to, you know, to what I said earlier. I'm yeah. naturally curious about people. You know, I remember mm-hmm. being like a little kid and, and seeing like big houses. And I always thought, I want to go knock on the door and say, how'd you do this? Like, what did you have to do to get this house? And, mm-hmm. um, but so I'm just naturally curious. But I, I think that, that when you meet people, and you start with, hey, what do you do? Instead of, let me tell you about me. It's a big thing in how we build websites. You know, you, most websites you go to, and the first thing says, about us. Who cares about you? That's right. I, I don't. I, I care about me. T- show me your products. Tell me when you're open. You know, if all that works, well, then I'll find out when grandpa started the company. Right now, I don't care. But I digress. But I think that you've got to you've got to find out about the other person, what makes them tick. And I think that you have to offer something of value first. You know, when when, when I worked in more of a traditional consulting firm and the guy who ran our firm was, you know, he was of the mindset that, you know, don't give anything away until you get a check. It was like, no, I mean, in our we're in the sample business, right? Yeah. I mean, every time you call on a customer, you know, it's like I've got the, the latest cake or chicken or diced tomato or whatever it happens to be. Here's a sample. If we don't give them a sample of our work and show them that, look, we're in and of the industry. We speak mm-hmm. the language. We know the tools. Here's two things that we've seen work. And and I think that when people do that, when, you know, when they, they say that you don't have your hand out, you know, I, I said earlier, you know, I, I get my friends to do business together, you know, and, but I don't, I don't have my hand out for everything. I just, yeah. I just today, I connected somebody that was a referral. I couldn't help them. And I said, here, call these people. They're good. And the person called and said, how much do you want me to build in for a commission? And if I, if I get the account, I said, nothing I, you know, this, this is, you know, go enjoy. Remember me, take me to lunch someday. I think it's all of these things that, that, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about your place in the world as I'm somebody that helps others. You know, mm-hmm. it just comes through and, and it has to be authentic. It isn't like, oh, strategy, make sure you help them and get a sample. It, it, that isn't it. Because if you're not authentic in your in your belief and desire, and I'll just say love of others to want to help them, it, pe- people smell that a mile away. Yeah, it, it's so true. You have to be genuine. And I like what you said, too, about giving something away to people first to build a relationship that way. What if it's not necessarily someone looking for a sample, but you want to build a relationship with this person and there's somebody that, you know, maybe they're well off, right? And they, they have everything that they could possibly need. What could you offer them? Or what, what could somebody listening along think, what is something I can offer someone who it seems like they have everything that they could possibly need? Yeah. Well, no one has it all, right? Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think that I think that ideas, innovation, enabling the future. I think this is something that appeals to everybody. Um, you know, people want to be known for something. They want to, at the end of their life, at the end of their day, at the end of their career, you know, they want to say, you know, when people talked about me, what they said was, and and that's going to be different for each person. And and so, so you know, giving people ideas, giving people encouragement you know, to follow their dreams. You know, so often the people that, as you described, have everything and the people that don't have as much as they would like to, it's, it's because they didn't, they didn't believe enough in their idea or, or they talked to somebody and they said, what do you think? Of, oh, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Okay. Okay. 
you know, <laughs> I think people need encouragement and and reinforcement and 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 sometimes modification of ideas. People have come to me and say, I have an idea. And it's like, that's that. But you could also consider this. Or did you ever think about spinning it like this? You know, I, I oftentimes think that that it's about simplicity. People come with such complex ideas and, and suggestions. And, you know, sometimes it's about taking things away. You know, think about think about companies like like an Ikea. Okay. Right? I mean, I mean, you know, big furniture. I mean, the, one of the biggest costs has got to be shipping, right? We're all in the shipping and freight <laughs> yeah. business, you know, around here, right? Great big sofa. It's like, what if you didn't put it, what if you didn't assemble it and you could put it in a really small box? So, so they took furniture, took away installation or, you know, construction mm-hmm. and made it a very affordable thing that people could come put in their car and, you know, do that at home. You know, it's like I think there's so many ideas like that where it's not so it's not always the natural thing we think about is how do we add? How do we add? How do we take away? How do we make it so that it's like one thing or two things that people can then get their their minds around? Totally. Looking back on your career, what do you say is the biggest deal that you've ever done? Or maybe one that's like, whoa, I, I, you know, it, it stands out to you. This wasn't the biggest deal, okay. but it was the, it was the first deal that I made that got me to see that taking a risk and doing something that nobody ever thought of was, you know, um, I was, I was, uh, I was in the wholesale dessert business and I okay. pitched, I pitched an idea to a, a restaurant chain. Um, it was Perkins um, pancakes in upstate New York. And they had all these items on the, you know, on the menu that were 99 cents. And I was selling cake that, that, that was $1.25 per slice. I mean, how am I going to get these guys to buy a, you know, $1.25 cake in a 99 cent world? And what I did was I was talking to the, the guy, I'd met the guy at the national restaurant show. He loved our cake. He said, I want to see you. And I went up and I talked to him and I said, I think you're thinking about this wrong. You're thinking about 30% food cost. So you're, you know, your 99 cent piece of cake, you're, you're paying 35 cents for, but that's 65 cents worth of gross profit. If you bought my dollar 25 cent cake and you sold it for a dollar 99 premium, it's 75 cents of gross profit. And he said, we'd make more money buying your cake than the other guy's cake. And I said, right. <laughs> And he did it. And what it did was it forced us into Cisco in that market, which we were not in, which I then rolled into about eight other Cisco houses in that region. But I mean, I was a 32-year-old you know, uh, regional sales manager with a whole lot of gumption to say that to a big buyer. And it worked. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the word risk, and you took a risk on that. I think for a lot of people, myself included, you know, taking a risk, it's, it's relative on how, how big you can go. But what is a way that people can be more comfortable taking risks that you've seen in your career? So there's, so there's, a, there's a, a risk curve, right? Mm-hmm. And, and people sit in, a, you know, in various places along that curve and in various parts and times of their lives. Um, so so it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's too broad a question to answer. What I can say about it is that um, I think that how you have to look at it is um, you want to get every deal, right? So you have a high intention 
to get every deal, but that you have a low attachment. I, you know, I want to get this deal, but if I don't, it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, if I don't get this deal, it's okay. There's 10 more, there's 15 more, there's 30 more years ahead of me. And I think that when you take the, all that air out of the balloon, if I don't make this deal, I'm not going to make my quota. My boss, that's, that's, you know, that's when the risk, the risk just becomes untenable. But when mm-hmm. you just look at it, it's, look, it's just another deal. You know, it's, it's, you know, you know, then, then, then that's how I think people can then come to it, you know, with like <sighs> air out of their lungs and just, just, just ready to just bring their best. Yeah. I, I can resonate with that a lot because I feel in my career when I have, when I'm actively building my pipeline and bringing a lot of opportunities, my mind is of abundance and you know, one deal here, one deal there, or even a few deals that if, if they don't come to fruition, so be it. We'll just get the next one. Or those deals, maybe in two years from now, they'll change their leadership or their go-to-market strategy and they'll come back around. That's right. And so it allows me to make one better decisions, bigger risks. But I do find in my career when I get tied up with other things or I'm focusing on other parts of my business and that that deal flow kind of dries up a little bit. It, as you're describing, it makes me anxious. It, it, it puts me on edge a little bit. And it also pushes you to the brink sometimes of making poor decisions. So yes. you have to keep an eye on that. Yes. It, um, it, that, that's, that's really well said. Um, that, you know, when, when you get into that panic mode, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's hard to keep your eye on, on the strategic things that you're really trying to accomplish. Totally. And looking at your career, what is something that you like to achieve that you've not yet achieved? That's an interesting question. It's pretty hard to stump me. I'm, I'm, I'm quick on my feet. <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah. God, I've been involved in so many different things. I, I think that the, the, when uh, companies that are organizations that I, that I give to from a charitable point of view, mostly yeah. are ones around feeding the hungry. Okay. And um, uh, that's, that's an important topic to me. I, I think that it's my purpose and, and I, I, I would like to, I'd like to achieve more with not only, getting myself, you know, to, to be in a position to give more to charities that feed people, but to, but to get others to do that as well. You know, I've, I've often thought about this idea of like, well, you got to do fundraising. What if we did food raising? And, um, you know, I, I, I think that, that there's to get more awareness, you know, out in the world about the, the reason that people starve in America is not about production. It's about distribution. Mm-hmm. You know, other parts of the world, I understand, they simply don't have the food. We have it here in abundance. We throw away 40% of the food that, that's grown and, and things that are, that are best buy versus expired. Expired, you shouldn't eat. Best buy? <laughs> graham crackers? Come on, those things will be good for two more years after that. Right? So that's something I'd like to achieve is, is getting our industry to rally more around feeding um, the hungry people that are here in this country. Yeah, I love that. That's such a good purpose to have. You know, when you have a purpose outside of making money or or building your own career, I think it just it lends itself to, you know, yeah, just being purpose, just having purpose in what you do. And I was writing actually some earlier for a LinkedIn post and you know, you get the advice a lot of times to follow your passion. And for me, I didn't necessarily follow my passion by getting into the food industry because I didn't necessarily want to be in the food industry. I wanted to be a financial advisor, but I got in and now I get to work with my dad and I get to build a team and build a company from zero. 
And it wasn't my being, being in the food industry was not initially my passion, but I found my purpose in my work. And I, I love what you're doing with food raising. That's so cool. We do the same too with other charitable organizations and give back our time and, and it just makes you feel good. Again, there's just no reason in, in this country for people to be hungry. Well, Ed, what is the best way for someone to connect with you, to find you, meet you? How, sure. how would they do that? Sure. Um, well, company is um, uh, thefoodconnector.com. Uh, okay. Link to, you know, to, to uh, myself there. Certainly I'm on LinkedIn. Um, email address is ezimmerman at thefoodconnector.com. I, I'm, I'm always happy to talk to people, share some knowledge and wisdom, you know, and um, ideas and, and that type of thing. So, uh, you know, feel free to give me a call. Fantastic. Ed, thank you so much. I really, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm a better person now that I got to meet you. So thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, as I said in our pregame show, I can't believe you and I have never met before. I know, right? probably know a thousand people in common, right? Are you in San Diego? No, uh, San Francisco. San Francisco. So we're even in the same state. Yeah. Crazy. Well, hopefully one day I get to meet you in person. And again, thank you so much for coming on. Okay. Thank Absolutely. you. Nick.